0: If you have your Bibles, could you take them and turn to Esther, Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2 today is where we will be. I've had seasons in my life where it may be a week or a month or two months or three months where it seemed like it wasn't just one, kind of one period of life change or one thing that changed in life, but it was lots of things. And then there's times where it just keeps seems to keep coming at us and keep coming at us and keep coming at us. And by the end of it all, we kind of wonder, like, you sit in, maybe, maybe in your living room and you're sitting on the couch going, what? What just happened? I mean, my life has significantly changed. Maybe it's a move or maybe it's a, a change in occupation or maybe it's just a change in family uh, situation, but you, it dawns on you, like, my life, my life has significantly changed. How? how did I get here? Like, I would never have guessed I would have been here a few months ago. I think when we start reading in the book of Esther, that's some of what we feel by the time we get to the end of the second chapter. We began last week walking through this book of the Bible. It's an important book of the Bible, kind of a unique book of the Bible. By the end of chapter 2, there's a new queen. And and your head kind of is spinning like, how... How did all of this happen? Along the way today, as we, as we dive into chapter 2, I think God has some things for us to learn. So I want to kind of, kind of start walking through this second chapter, really asking the Lord, what, what would you have me to learn? How can I grow? I think if, if we were to try to gain some big truths, one of those in this second chapter, and let's kind of front load it, one of those will be this. In the middle of an unstable world, God is at work. In the middle of an unstable world, God is at work. I'm sure this will not be the last time in this series I say those very things. In the middle of an unstable world, God is at work. Let's look at scripture and dig into this story, which is uh, a picture of of lots of unstable things. And let's watch God go to work. In verse 1 of Esther chapter 2, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And the young woman who pleases the king let, let her be queen instead of Ashton. Well, this pleased the king, and he did so. If you were here last week, and just by, by way uh, of simple review, Esther 1 starts off with a big party, a party of like kingly proportions. It's, you know, go big, go home. Lots of alcohol. As alcohol is flowing, as this you know, multi-month party is going on, the king gets an idea. Let's, let's trot out the queen. Everybody ought to see how beautiful my wife is. Let's trot her out and everybody can look at her. Only the queen, Queen Vashti, says, no, I'm not going. This king who gets his way all the time doesn't get his way there. And it's amazing what happens next is an emergency, emergency council is called. The laws are made that the women will obey their husbands, Vashti's deposed, and on, on we go. We don't need her anymore anyway. But by the time you get to chapter 2 and verse 1, we have like after these things, it's like one of those moments where the king might have realized, oh, what was I doing? Especially after these things, there, there's something embedded in that that we actually don't get from biblical history, but we do get from other historical sources, is that in between chapter 1 and many of the events of chapter 2, the king went off to battle. He went off to battle in Thermopylae and and he loses that battle to the Greeks. So he is coming home a defeated king. And he's coming home, and maybe it just dawned on him on the boat ride home, he's coming home a lonely king as well. Just interesting the way the words are. He remembered what Vashti had done, not what he had done. And he remembered what had been decreed about her as if it just happened independently of him. We've got a a king, and and certainly it seems like the empire is less than stable. This king has advisors. And what's interesting as you follow this king, King Xerxes is another name for him, is that it seems like he makes no decisions on his own. It seems like lots of people have things to say to him, advice he gets all throughout the book. And so here he has the idea of a contest where he could get a new wife. As we begin to dig further into this chapter, we'll go further, but this king who has absolute authority seems willing to use that absolute authority to exploit others for his pleasure. It's just interesting. This king doesn't seem to be necessarily sexist. So he gets young men in the empire. And those are eunuchs that will serve at his pleasure. They don't get a choice in the matter. we were introduced to Haggai, who serves at the king's pleasure. (coughs) He gathers young women young virgins to himself they will serve body and soul at the king's pleasure this is not this is not a pretty picture it is a very realistic one of what someone might do when presented with absolute authority even if it costs them even if it costs these young men and these young women sexually it does not matter to the king he will get what he wants that is the world of esther chapter 2 Yet I said, in the in the middle of this unstable world, God is at work. I mean, world powers seem to be realigning. The, this world power, the Persian Empire king, Xerxes, seems to be experiencing vulnerability in a way he had not before. The king is less than stable in what he wants and, and, and what he will get. He has advisors around him that seem ridiculously foolish. He He has young women and young men in the empire that he'll say, you and you and you and you. And he will get them for whatever purpose he wants. Uncertainty for what that may mean. But in the middle of that, we said God is at work. God is on the throne. And we would be right, you might be right to say, Curtis, I read verse 1 before. I don't see God at work at all. I don't see God's name mentioned. And that is true. I mentioned this last week. You can read the whole book of Esther. And God's name is never mentioned. So how can I say that God is at work even in the middle of unstable circumstances? If God isn't even mentioned. There is a way of writing, and I think Esther is a prime example of this kind of writing. There is a way of storytelling where where you give enough clues where you go, well, imagine the timing. He just so happened to, and then she just so happened to, and then it just so happened that. And by that, we, we know what's being communicated. There is something outside uh, of even individual decisions that are made. Some higher purpose, higher power is governing some of these things. And I think that is exactly the way Esther is written. God is behind what we see. And as you put it together, what you can't do in Esther is go, oh, Yeah, there are about 75 coincidences. Hmm. By the time you're done with Esther, you're saying, no, no, no. There's no coincidences. God is at work. What Esther doesn't say explicitly, the Bible does say many other places explicitly, and that is God is at work even in the middle of chaos. Psalm 46 and verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear listen though the earth gives way in the middle of unstable circumstances an unstable world we don't have to fear it says in Proverbs 21:1 of a very appropriate verse for this series in this book, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Daniel 2 says it explicitly. God changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. Psalm 135, 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. This is no small God. This is a big God that we talk about and we sing about regularly. This is a big God. And in the middle of an unstable world, God is still at work. I think we need to be reminded of that because we look at a world around us that often seems unstable. So generally, when I'm looking at the headline of news or like when the, when the feed comes on the, the right-hand side of my screen, it's generally not stability they're talking about. Generally, as the breaking news and this just in, generally, it doesn't go this just in. The world's becoming a much better place. This just in. The Middle East is a much safer place to live. It never goes that way. It hasn't gone that way for all the years that I'm watching the news. Our schools are now safer than they've ever been. That'll never, that, that's never said. And it's easy in the middle of all that where, where all these news channels and all these news outlets are just making your heart be afraid and, and worried and fearful and they're, they're triggering all those things that would make you want to seriously, seriously hit like panic. What is going on to this world we live in? In the middle of that, Where does your heart go? It may be one of those seasons of life where you don't have time to keep up with what's going on in the Middle East or in North Korea or in Africa or in Latin America because your home situation is so, so chaotic. You're dealing with this appointment, that diagnosis, this family member's decision this important decision you've got to make, like, I don't have time to think about the world. I don't have time to process it all. Because my heart is overwhelmed at just the instability of what I'm facing. Work might be a mess. Decisions are looming. Anxiety's building. Your heart is troubled. A million things you have to care about and you can't, you're looking around. Nobody is there to share that with Maybe you're lonely, maybe you're angry, maybe your decision-making in the last 12, 18, 24 months kind of went off the rails and you're having to live with the consequences of some of those decisions and you're going, right now, unstable is a description of my world, Curtis. And so again, I would say, in the middle of an unstable world, God is at work. God is at work. God is now here. God is present. We're also introduced to some more characters in this book. I think there's an, another thing, especially in this chapter, that I want us to see. But secondly, in, in, in the life of a weak person, in this chapter, God demonstrates his care. And when you read the word weak, what I, what I don't want you to think is somehow that's a put-down. What I recognize is that all of us at some point in our lives are going to go through times where we feel very weak, where we feel very vulnerable. It's just hard. I mean, all you have to do is live long enough and you are going to feel like I'm not in control of some things. And in the life of a very weak person as presented in Esther 2, God shows his care. It's interesting, all the way up to, from, from the first verse in the first chapter till the second chapter in verse 4, like, all of that is, is interesting, but you kind of wonder, like, why is that in the Bible? The fact is, like, Middle Eastern kings, they always got new wives if they wanted them. Why is that remarkable? But it all changes. We're brought into this story in verse 5 of chapter 2. Can we read it? In verse 5, the first word in the Hebrew is a Jew. Smoothed out a little bit in English. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon had carried away. It's interesting. So Mordecai, we're introduced to a new character in this Mordecai. It's interesting, the, the description here. So some of the background seems really positive. He's the son of this person, the son of this person, the son of this person. That is a Hebrew way of saying this person has a pedigree. He, has, he matters. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. That's an important tribe. That's one of the big tribes. And so in the midst of this unstable world, there's a man named Mordecai. There's, there's this lone man. His name is Mordecai. He's a Jew. And he has a heritage. And that seems like, wow, that's impressive. He's got this heritage. And then the last part of that description in verse 6 is he was carried away. He was captive, carried away, carried away. In other words, he's a refugee. He's an exile. He's someone who's going to live, but maybe never quite belong I wonder if those that are those that are, are immigrants would be able to identify that sense of is this ever really going to feel like home? I do wonder if some of those that are, are not in a majority culture would understand some of the dynamics that are are playing out here where it feels like am I, am I ever going to be right at home? maybe, maybe we can understand the vulnerability of someone that may not have all the rights and privileges of a citizen and maybe could easily be taken advantage of. So we're introduced to Mordecai, and in verse 7 we're introduced to the, the lead character of the book, other than God himself. Verse 7 of Esther 2. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. She had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own. Esther is a person of such contrast. So she's an orphan. So she is like ultra vulnerable in this kind of world. But yet she's cared for, isn't she? She's looked after. Mordecai is watching over her. Then there's another contrast, like, so she's beautiful. Yet we, we know, we know what this king is like. We've read a couple chapters now. We know what he's like and we know where beautiful women go. So we don't know. It's, it's pretty certain this is not so much an asset, a more of a liability that she gets the king's attention. At least as the story's unfolding. It's also a contrast in that she has two names. Did you see that? So she has her Hebrew name. But then she has her her Persian name. And maybe it was better to lead with that because this other name may have some rough consequences if too many people know exactly who she is. She's got another name. This is Esther. It's a a story of contrast and what is so different is chapter 1 and all the power of the king and here we have two refugees, two exiles. And then the wheels start to turn in what's going to happen in this story. Look at verse 8. It's like the table is set, we've got the characters in place. Verse 8, so when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the c- citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken. What's well, not clear, like, it doesn't say. Did she sign up? Did she have no choice in that? It does not say. What it says is she was taken. She was taken into the king's palace, put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. And Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening. To her, a few things are beginning to stand out. We're beginning to get a glimpse. There's hints. This is a beautifully written story, and the hints are: first of all, Esther's going to be a person that receives a lot of favor. She's got the attention of Hey guy. He's like making sure she gets advanced along the way. He he sees her. There's something special about her. What is it? What makes him? I mean, likely he's seen he's seen young women from all throughout the empire. What is it that makes him see something in her? We don't know, but. But he sees her, and so she gets favor. But then her nationality or, or her religion or both seem to be more harmful than helpful in this empire. So Mordecai says, don't tell anybody about it. In verse 11, we see even another hint like, Mordecai is always looking out for Esther. He begins looking out for her. As the story progresses, we get further into a description of a world that Honestly, as I've read it this week, the more times I've read it, the more difficult it is to think about. Let's look at verse 12. Notice the description here. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, so the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointment for women, When the young women, verse 13, went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. I'm always interested. The Bible presents things in such, a, it is a very modest way, but it's also a very realistic way so that the Bible's not trying to shock anybody. But it's also not hiding some of the things in our world that are, that are awful, that are despicable. I want to clear up some misconceptions because as you read those verses in a modest way, but in a very real way, we need to please be relieved of any kind of comparison to a disney movie with a princess and how beautiful this story is before before you get out the popcorn and enjoy kind of l- overlay uh, miss america or miss universe or the bachelor or some sort of combination of that and isn't this for our entertainment this is actually not a pretty story we magnify we glorify a one-night hookup and and yet this is this is not telling one of those kinds of stories This is talking about a king who will do with whatever he wants. Uh, One comes in, one goes out, the next night it's the same deal. For many of these young women, this is likely the worst moment imaginable. This is a moment of such degradation. This is not really a ragster riches story. Another virgin comes in, she's transferred from here to there, and from there she will stay. So, all the records, everything tells us when, when. The woman went into the king. When she would go out, she would never come out. She would never have kids, never have grandkids. She would never know the love of another family. She was stuck for all intents and purposes. She was a slave. She was well-treated, well-fed, but she was stuck. This is not a beautiful picture. As we read further into this story, it seems almost inevitable the drama begins to build about what might happen in verse fifteen when the when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihil, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised. And Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Just interesting as we read those verses, you see Esther, but the Bible will not let us just think she is the king's plaything. This is, this is a woman who has a name and she was someone's daughter. And the Bible, I think even in this language is telling us something about the dignity that God cares about each human being. And they matter to him, whether they matter to the king for more than one night, they matter to God. And even written in this story is that it is her name and, and her, her dad's name and the, the family connection with Mordecai. In verse 16, now when Esther was taken to the king, uh, King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebath in the 7th year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head. And made her queen instead of Ashti. The king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. And take note of this. What is the name of it? It was Esther's feast. He also granted her a mission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. I mean, how did we get here? How did we get here? From from the first verse of this chapter, we don't even know her name. She's non-existent in the king's world. And at the end, she has a feast named for her. How does this happen? How did we get here? At this point, as we read, especially in this particular part of the story of Esther, we feel the need to do something, or at least I, I feel the need to do something and as I've read commentaries. There is this desire in us to, to at least answer this question, like, did Esther do right or wrong here? Like, is this something that's okay? Or something that she didn't have a choice in, or a little bit of both? Or what all is going on here? Where's her faith? Yet the way this story is presented, it just doesn't go there. You can read it again and again, it just does not go there. You are not, I am not called on to prosecute Esther, to say, naughty Esther. When someone says something like that, you say, no, Vashti did, you should have too. We're we're actually not called on to do that. Our judgments are not called upon in this story. Are you supposed to sleep with someone who is not your husband? Other scriptures answer that question very clearly. No, you're not supposed to. No, this is not God's design. This story doesn't even seem like it's interested in answering that. Are you supposed to marry a pagan king? Are you supposed to marry an unbeliever? Well, it would be an adventure in missing the point if you tried to make that case out of here. That's not what this is... That's not what this story is, is all about. And there are many places to go in Scripture with those sorts of things. We're not called on to prosecute Esther. Shame on her. We're not called to defend Esther. Oh, Curtis, you're reading this all wrong. She's actually a hero. She, she knew what she had to do, and she wanted to rule and be like, do good things for people. So she did what she had to do so that she could, you know, do God's will in the long run. And then you're twisted up into an ends justifies the means kind of pretzel. And I, I don't think, again, we're called on to defend Esther here, to cheer for her, to boo for, boo over her. I'm more sure than ever that figuring out the morality of Esther in this moment is not the point of the story. So what is it? I think one of the things we are supposed to draw from this story, because we do, we don't, we're not treated to what's going on in her brain, What's going on in her heart? I think one of the things we're to take away from this story, again, is that in the life of a weak person, who really didn't have a lot of options. She could defy the king. That would probably mean her life. God demonstrates his care. You see in this chapter, the writer goes over the top. In wanting to communicate, Esther wins favor. She wins favor. She pleases. She pleases Hegai. She pleases the king. I don't. I don't know whether it's a compliment. It doesn't seem like it's a compliment when it said Xerxes loved her. That kind of man. I'm not sure that's a compliment. But it preserves her life. She wins grace. She wins favor. Something, someone is looking out for Esther. She's been adopted. Mordecai could just gotta kind of go. Well, in tough times, you gotta do what you gotta do. So, sorry about that. Sorry about that, Esther. But I, I've got my own life to live. But he, but he's paying attention to her. He's wanting to make sure she's okay. Her name is mentioned regularly. She's a person. She matters. And you say, well, Curtis, God. It doesn't say God showed favor to Esther, and it doesn't. Again, I'd say behind the scene, God is showing favor through these individuals. And I think again, and again, the point is that God cares for his people. God takes these random things. I mean, does it not seem so random that Esther's picked? I mean, there were tons of virgins that the king could have delighted in, but he, but he finds this one. I mean, what is it? It seems, why did Esther get picked? What was the, the beautiful quality of her versus the person that lived three, three doors down? I mean, why is it? Why does she get the favor God is caring. And God is taking the worst elements. This is a story that's repeated over and over in the Bible. God is taking the worst elements of this sin-filled world and he's caring for people and working out his purposes even in their lives. He's taking those, even like Esther will, spare lives. She'll be highly influential and God will use her to spare lives of others. But this all starts with some of the worst elements of living in a broken world. you go elsewhere in the Bible and it's very clear God cares for people that are in a position of weakness. You want to talk about Joseph? It says very explicitly God showed him favor. Daniel, God showed him favor. Moses, God shows him favor. Esther, it's written a little bit differently but it's no less true as in Exodus chapter 2 when God hears and remembers and sees and knows what his people are going through. Or Ezekiel 16 when he graphically describes his care of the nation of Israel and how he watched over them. He watches over the nation. He watches over individuals. Or the care of Jesus when he's with a woman who also does not have a a good reputation and he's with her at the well and, and he cares for her and he talks to her or when he talks to the, the widows, those that were threatened in their livelihood, or when he talks with Peter who had failed him, who had denied him three times, he, he shows his care for those that are even experiencing the deep weakness of life. Whether you think everything in, in so far in the book of Esther is a little shady, or whether you think Esther is a huge hero, and I think A case can be made for Esther and the accomplishments that that we will find in the rest of this book. I think there is something we can learn from. Because I don't know too many people that can live very long, that don't look back at things in their life. And maybe they were the victim, and maybe they were totally compliant. Maybe they had no choice in the matter. But as they think about it, as you think about it, men and women, as we think about what we've done, maybe some choices we've made, some choices where we've lied, where we didn't tell the whole truth, some choices where we knew this was wrong, we knew it, and we compromised, and and we knew this is not the way it should go, but but we, we rationalized, we justified, and we look back to it, and we're horrified by it, where we could tell you in detail the pressure we felt in that moment to cave in, to hurt our friends, to to like desert our family, and yet we still made the choice and we're not proud of that. Some, some moments of shame where we felt such pressure and also thought there was no way out. I think we may be able to relate to more in this story. Moments where we, we idolized something else and maybe our conscience bothered us or maybe we felt too lost and confused to even know what to think or feel. Those moments where we look back and we go, I wish I could just delete that from the record of my life. I hate myself for this. I wish I could change it. I don't, I don't know what Esther thought of it. I don't know how she wrestled with it. But I don't know how many people, how many of us wrestle with shame and guilt and things that we are certainly not proud of. Things that were clearly done in God's sight. I think the message of this passage is still that God cares. God looks out for us. And maybe it's through a friend, and maybe it's through a family member, or maybe it's through circumstances or coincidences. God has given you hope for a new start that while, while you feel shame over even what you've done, His mercies are new every morning. And it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We can trust in Him at all times. We can pour out our heart before Him because God is a refuge for us. Do you know this care? I would say we have even resources that Esther couldn't draw upon. We have a, a Bible with 66 books. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have a church family that can remind us that we aren't just a, a wad of shame and guilt, that will never be able to outrun the past, but we are in Christ made new creatures and the debt is paid. It's paid in full. This is amazing news. The story of Esther keeps on moving, but right here we need to stop and make sure we know this God who can deal, who can deal with things we regret, things that we wished had never happened, things that seem to have characterized so much in our lives. At the end of the day, Esther is shown amazing favor through humans. The king loves her. Haggai advances her. Mordecai watches over her. Esther is being cared for. But all of that pales in comparison when we are cared for not just by a flawed human by the, by the perfect human perfect God perfect man Jesus Christ who cares for us who knows us who shows us the, the favor we never could earn the grace we never deserve the mercy when we need it the most the hope and the help it's one thing if someone shows us favor in life but what is it when the king of kings grants favor to you. It's amazing. I mean, the description of what we have in Christ, our salvation, is not this cold transaction, but it's a call to an ongoing relationship where we are meant to follow this one who saved us and obey this one who saved us and trust this one who saved us and live in the righteousness of this one who saved us. This is amazing. God shows favor, but no favor was ever shown quite like God showed favor to us as sinners, as Christ died on the cross. And we are made righteous in him. It's all wrapped up in a relationship of which Jesus is calling us. Yeah, he knows what happened. He knows what the past is. It never was hidden from him to begin with. And he's calling us into a relationship and he's making us more and more like himself in that relationship God cares enough to have sent his only son to reconcile you to himself so my, my, my friends will you believe and turn to him and repent and you say well Curtis I, I have done that I trusted in him I'm relying on him I know exactly what it means to have the favor of God because I trusted in Jesus Christ well, will, will you worship him this morning will you trust him will you will you follow him will you do what he says will you obey him Will you know, will you rely on his provision for you even in the moment, grace and daily bread for each hour? Will you trust him? In a moment, we're going to sing a song that really speaks to our soul and it says we can be still inside. Our souls can be still because the Lord is on our side. He's shown his favor. Can we thank him for that this morning? Let me pray. Lord, we are grateful be called by your name and loved by you. We rest in you. We thank you we thank you that you've done for us what we could not do in our own strength. May we worship and trust as we are in you. We are totally yours. Thank you for the reminder from your word today. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.